1: Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: There's a concern among people who have lived here a long time or who are from here that the newcomers are changing the city and its culture. We're looking at the prospect of a a whiter, wealthier city that potentially threatens all of the things that makes New Orleans the reason why people want to come here in the first place.
3: Katrina, Ferguson, Oak Creek. In America, a local tragedy can spark a national conversation. But what happens after the national news cycle moves on? I'm Ziba Blay, and this is I'm Still Here, a HuffPost podcast
4: get ready to go back home and then next morning they're like, oh snap, the levee's broke, New Orleans
5: is flooded. And we're watching from the hotel room in Dallas, our city
4: drown. I'm like, yo, you need to be ready. This isn't what you think it is. Like, it's totally different.
5: Our culture was washed away, you know. If nobody came back, what would we be?
3: New Orleans is a culturally rich and complex place. Each year around 10 million people flock to the city to take in its famous cuisine, live music and people. Tourism is an important part of the city's economy and 12 years after Hurricane Katrina, it's certainly booming. But as the industry is thriving, many of its workers, the locals who make this culture so special, are not. For this episode, HuffPost reporter Caroline Bologna and producer Nick Offenberg traveled to New Orleans. Carolyn grew up in New Orleans and Nick spent three years there attending Tulane University. They took a look at one particular local community, the musicians, who survived Katrina but now face different challenges that threaten their ability to work and make ends meet. Because the story of New Orleans is complicated, we spoke to an expert in the city's music, culture and history, Matt Sakakini. He's an ethnomusicologist and professor of music at Tulane University. To get a sense of what's changed for this community, we went back to one of the most life-altering events for the people in New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina. We asked Matt about what happened to musicians during Katrina, the issues they dealt with returning to the city, and the challenges they're facing now.
2: What's so unique about Katrina is that there was this forced evacuation. So you had every New Orleanian out of the city and spread out around the country. And so the question for a lot of the musicians and those of us who love the music is, is are the musicians going to come back to the city? And is the is music going to come back to the city? And of course, that's an important question in New Orleans, because New Orleans whole identity as a place is, is, is as a musical city, right? Is the birthplace of jazz as a place where blues and rhythm and blues and soul and funk and hip hop really flourished. and um, And so there was this fear of loss, right, that um, that the city would wash away, and that all of these unique local traditions of not just musical performance, but jazz funerals, and Mardi Gras Indians, and um, second-line parades would um, be gone, and I think, uh, well, first of all, it's really important to say that they're not, and that the New Orleans music scene, in terms of creativity, and the musicians themselves has come back stronger than ever. And I think the other important thing to realize is that sh- that return of those majority of musicians, now many, many people are still um, displaced from the city or have set up roots elsewhere, but in general the large-scale return of the musicians actually demonstrates how important music is to the city not just in terms of like the heartbeat of the city and the soul of the city but the actual like infrastructure of the city the city relies on these musicians and others to um carry forth not just the traditions and the way we feel about this place but actually like the infrastructure the economy the hotels the bars the nightclubs the um conventions that hire bands that that people come here expecting to hear New Orleans music. And I think there's a real tangible aspect to the significance of these people who carry forward uh, New Orleans music, um, that we talk about them not only in terms of the beauty they bring to our lives or the way they've resiliently carried these traditions forward, but actually how much we rely upon them for our jobs and for our home values and for... The, to carry forward the things that make this city unique. Um, what what makes the musicians such an interesting case study is, uh, I I don't think we realized the extent of which we needed the musicians to come back, and the fact that they did. Right. So when you get um, at that point, Lieutenant Governor Mitch Landrew, who's now who's now our mayor, going up in front of Congress and saying, "Please give us money because we're a unique place with, with extraordinary culture and exceptional." traditions what he's saying is we need these musicians we need these chefs we need uh these artists to come back um but he's not actually saying that right in other words there's not there weren't actually programs to bring people back it came down to the famous uh self um resilience of of individuals to come back to rebuild their homes to bring their instruments with them to to return uh, and restore uh, the music of this city. Um, and I i think the question since Katrina is, are we giving those musicians the sort of respect and resources they deserve?
6: To help answer that question, we spoke to a local musician, Chris Royal. Chris is a saxophone player who grew up in New Orleans. He was home for summer break from Berklee College of Music when Katrina hit and his family's home, which was located near the 17th Street Canal, was destroyed. They were displaced, but over time, his family rebuilt their home and returned. In 2008, Chris moved back to New Orleans as well.
4: Yeah, a lot of people stayed in Texas and Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, and a lot of people didn't. Like My cousin, he's also a saxophone player. He stayed in Dallas. He has a great career in Dallas. I always wondered what it would have been like if he had come back, you know? At that time, there were only like a few clubs open. It wasn't like now. It was like the Spot Laziza, spot, uh, the Spotty Cat, which we still play at every Sunday. We've been playing there for like 10 years now. The Blue Now, like the Frenchman Street scene was totally different. Like now Frenchman is kind of like a new Bourbon Street, but back then it was like three clubs, four clubs open. Snug, Blue Now, Spotted Cat, and maybe a couple more.
6: When did you first sort of notice the, you know, bourbonification of Frenchmen?
4: Uh, it's been a slow process, but it definitely kind of happened with the show Treme. After Treme came out, you started to see more and more tourists coming like, oh, let's go check out Frenchman Street instead of just going to Bourbon Street. And then slowly it just kind of blossomed into this theme. There's some people that hadn't been back like since Katrina. And I'd be like, yo, you need to be ready. This isn't what you Think it is like it's totally different because you know now there's like a dad dog, and all these other clubs that weren't even there. Literally, were just lots on Frenchman Street where they built these buildings. So it's kind of a shock for some people coming back.
6: Frenchman Street is often considered more of the locals' version of Bourbon Street, where people go to catch live music. But over the years, it's also become a very popular tourist attraction. Located just outside the French Quarter in a neighborhood called the Marigny the street is aligned with bars and music venues packed with a steady stream of artists and revelers. Frenchmen has been the subject of debate within the music community recently, as artists have spoken out about inadequate pay from gigs at Frenchman venues, a phenomenon some blame on the fact that many of these venues do not charge covers for people to come check out the live music. Chris got some attention earlier this year thanks to a Facebook post he wrote late one night. The post said simply, Man, it would be really dope if clubs on Frenchmen charged a cover and actually paid the bands. Um, you've spoken out about some challenges musicians face with venues specifically on Frenchmen. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could speak a little to that and what your journey's been like.
4: Well, I think a big part of it actually was after Katrina, there was nowhere to play. So cats would take whatever gig they could, even if it was paying or not. So we had a lot of young cats who were in school taking gigs that aren't paying. Now, I know that sounds weird to some people, but that's how it works. Getting 20% of the bar for a gig isn't getting paid. The bars are selling alcohol. They're not paying for the music. So basically, they're getting these cats in there and they're playing for nothing. Tips and 20% of the bar. Instead of charging a cover and actually paying the band. Or just paying the band outright. they so like, yeah, you get 20% of the bar, which is nothing.
6: Do you, Have you come into contact with a lot of musicians that come from outside New Orleans that are oh, yes. moving
4: here? Every week I meet somebody that was like, yeah, I came down here to visit for Jazz Fest and I just stayed or I came to visit for such and such and I loved it. Because it's like, you can gig nonstop, but what they don't realize is these gigs aren't really paying. They're coming and doing these gigs for 20% of the bar instead of starting a band and holding themselves to a standard where like, yo, I want to charge a $5 cover. I'd rather play for people who actually wanna hear the music than drunk tourists that just happen to stumble into this bar. So it's, it's part of the challenge, you know? Like, yeah, you can come down here and work, but are you adding anything to the culture or are you just kinda of sucking it up, you know? I think it's on the musicians to demand that they get paid, you know, like, yo, we practice our entire lives at this craft, we're not gonna give it away for free. If everybody got together and said, yo, we, we want to charge a cover for our show or our gig, $5 isn't a lot of money. People spend $50 a night on alcohol. I don't think they would mind spending 5 bucks to get into a club to see some amazing music.
6: Matt Sakakini echoed Chris's concerns about pay for musicians.
2: There's different sort of levels of musical visibility in the city. And because New Orleans is famous, the world around as a musical city, there will always be bands like the Rebirth Brass Band or Galactic and artists like Trombone Shorty and Big Sam's Funky Nation that are attracting um, audiences all around the world that are commanding high level fees and that are doing really well because, um, because they came up here and are trained in that only in New Orleans musical style that people want to grab onto and, and, you know, hear in every corner of the world. I think underneath those musicians um, are the everyday people who keep local traditions alive but aren't the marquee names. And those musicians are playing in bars where for the two or three hours they're on stage, their pay is essentially 20% of what they call the ring so the bar makes $1000 over those 3 hours the musicians are going to get $200 cuz they're going to get 20% of that if you have what mu- listeners expect to be a five or six or seven piece jazz band you see where the its economy is going right it's a um you're you're getting $25 $50 to play a show that hundreds of people are seeing that maybe someone from Iowa decided to come to their annual real estate convention because they know it's in new orleans and they want to go out and hear live music and the convention and visitors bureau is lumping millions of dollars into advertising campaigns to make sure those people get here but the money never actually reaches the everyday musicians that are actually providing the sort of backbone for the the cultural economy it's a trickle-down economics and and it it's trickling down to them in in, in drops and in, in accumulating up at the top.
6: Housing also remains an important issue for many working-class people in the city, from the musicians to hotel workers to kitchen staff. One factor changing the housing market in New Orleans is the influx of outsiders moving to the city. Here's Matt again.
2: My colleague Rich Campanella has done this study where we think something like thirty or 40,000 um, people Transplants have moved to the city since the economic collapse of 2008 or 9, and they are really concentrated in the Bywater, Maroney, St. Rock, Upper Ninth Ward neighborhoods, but also in downtown, literally central business district neighborhoods that historically didn't have apartments but now have high-rise luxury apartments and, and other new uh, developments. And so many of those developments, people don't realize, are actually subsidized by the city and the state and the federal government Um, and what we're trying to advocate for is is moving subsidies to that actually help everyday working-class people that in our city would include musicians
6: Chris sees the popular HBO show Treme as one reason New Orleans became so popular post-Katrina
4: everybody's looking at Katrina under a microscope and then that Treme show popped up and everybody was like, oh, New Orleans, is cool. We can go have a gumbo party every weekend, and it's Mardi Gras all the time. So everybody comes down here once, and so it's like, yep, it's exactly like the show. Then they move here. Yeah, I don't think it would have happened if it wasn't for Katrina.
6: But of course it wasn't just Treme. Matt Sakakini points back to the financial crisis of 2007-2008 and how it relates to post-Katrina New Orleans.
2: I think the Treme show encapsulated a lot of the tension around new people coming to the city, and it coincided with that. Um, I think that was one factor. And another factor was that the country had gone through an economic collapse, but New Orleans had a financial bubble because there was all of this money, uh, uh, FEMA money and other money, to rebuild the city, lots of nonprofit money going around. There was a fair amount of jobs in the nonprofit and rebuilding sector, and all of that. So, and 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 New Orleans has always been attractive to people, but it became a sort of logical place for what I'm going to say is like a brief window of time. That time may in fact be over. Um, New Orleans is not necessarily affordable anymore um, uh, compared to other cities, and is not necessarily, it may have jumped the shark, is not necessarily as attractive as it was in that time a few years ago, post-Katrina.
6: And of course, there's the classic gentrification narrative, as many historically black neighborhoods are now filled with mostly white residents, pushing the former inhabitants further away from the heart of the city. Here's Chris again.
4: I mean, it's interesting, you have all these people moving from Seattle and all these random places. And now the people who actually work in New Orleans that were born and raised in New Orleans, who work the service industry jobs, work in hotels, they can't afford to live in the city. So they end up getting pushed further and further out. And you know the the, uh, public transit here isn't that great. If you live in Met, it's hard to get all the way downtown to work at your hotel job or whatever. So there's some challenges that are being presented with so many people moving from out of town, you know? Some people are in town just playing these type of gigs to try to make a living. And it's kind of hard. I, I don't see how you can possibly make a living just playing those type of gigs. Especially with the rent going up because now there's nothing but Airbnbs everywhere. So rent's going up, and cats are still making nothing on Frenchman Street and on these other gigs. Yeah, it's tough out here for cats, man. You know?
6: This touched on another point of tension for residents of New Orleans, Airbnb. Matt Sakakini also talked to me about this.
2: Short-term rentals is a problem in certain parts of the city where, say, in the bywater, where there's an incredibly high concentration of Airbnb rentals. And what that has done is driven up, uh, it, it it means that there's less rental properties available on the market. And you would think maybe that'll only affect the bywater. But what it does is it affects the whole city because it pushes people who, who live here and want and can only afford to rent an apartment into other neighborhoods where there's actual rental properties available. And so it raises the whole floor of the cost of living. It presents a real conundrum for, say, individual owners who say, hmm, If I put my place on Airbnb, I could maybe make twice as much a month um, renting out my apartment to, you know, a series of bachelorette parties, which is what I see in my neighborhood all the time, right, or bachelor parties of groups of people who come from out of town. And it presents a real conundrum to the consumer who maybe wants to stay in a house and wants not to stay in a hotel and separate hotel rooms and wants to be in certain neighborhoods So it's not about, like, these things being bad. They just need to be regulated in the sense where they're not running rampant and people aren't owning multiple properties that they're renting out, which is illegal but is not enforced, right? Um, And so that would resolve the issue, but we would need a city council and a mayor's office who's um, willing to enact those kinds of programs that, that the developers and big business in the city see as anti-business, but it's not actually anti-business to provide um, for everyday workers. If you're not, if you're going to pay them minimum wage, or if you're not going to ensure that they have a livable wage, you're going to price out your um, stock of of available workers. Right? It lowers the standard of expectation of what people can live on in this city who actually live here permanently and want to stay here, most of whom are from here, most of whom are poor, most of whom are black New Orleanians. And so uh, we're looking at the prospect of a, a whiter, wealthier city that potentially threatens all of the things that makes New Orleans the reason why people want to come here in the first place.
6: This is a really complex issue. So to put a face on the problem, my colleague Emily Peck went down to the city to interview residents and Airbnb owners. I caught up with Emily to talk about what she found. Um, So Emily, you recently wrote a piece in partnership with The Lens on Airbnbs in New Orleans. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening?
0: Sure. So yeah, I went down to New Orleans to do the story to take a look at what Airbnb was actually doing to the city. Earlier this year, New Orleans passed a new law which made it even easier or better put, made it legal for anyone to turn their home or their apartment into a short-term rental or list on Airbnb. Before that, the legality of doing it was a little dubious. It didn't stop people from listing on Airbnb, but they but this new law really made it more popular, made it sort of legal. Made it okay so we wanted to see like what was going on and what we found was airbnb and short term rentals are causing a lot of disruption to some of the city's really coolest neighborhoods the, the places where people want to live the most um typically right outside the french quarter um, and also uptown and the you know near the gardens district um those places were being massively disrupted by airbnb mm.
6: Um, how many Airbnbs were, did you find were
0: listed? I know there was some data about that. It was about, uh, let's say, like 4,000 listings on the site. And um, we don't actually know. That just means 4,000 permits. We don't actually know if that's all the Airbnbs in the city or not because um, it's reasonable to assume that not everyone has a permit and is doing this the legal way. Mm. So it's thousands of Airbnb listings. But... For a big city, you'd think, well, that's maybe not a lot. I mean, the population of New Orleans is like 400,000 um, people. So, but the problem is, the listings are concentrated in these these certain neighborhoods. The Marigny is very popular; like 10, percent um, I think, of residences there have Airbnb permits, short-term rental permits, um, and that's quite disruptive to a neighborhood. I mean, you can just go to the Marigny or some other really, you know, up-and-coming neighborhoods in the city, and you'll just see tourists walking by with their rolling suitcases, staring at their phones, you know, looking at Google Maps. Um, It's just really changed the city. Yeah, totally.
6: Um, In your piece, you highlight a positive example of Airbnb's impact or having that option. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, there are a lot of negative examples. We talked to someone who, we talked to renters who were evicted from their apartments because their landlords want to make more money renting out the places short term, you can make a lot more money. Um, But we did find people that were using the service totally legally um, and doing well. Um, One fellow we talked to who lives in the Bywater neighborhood, which is a rapidly gentrifying area, uh, he rents out a room in his home and has a separate bathroom, but it's part of his house. It's not a a whole home or anything like that. Um, And he... Was doing so well listing it on Airbnb that he was able to um, quit his job, and he does this full time now. He makes he makes his living off the Airbnb listing, which is great. He's really excited about it. And um, his wife was able to open quit her corporate job and open a bakery in the neighborhood. Um, and he said that about 40 percent of the people that come in the bakery are tourists, Airbnb people. But um, the bakery is really cool. And, you know, it's contributing to the local economy. And everyone's doing really great. So that's sort of like the best you can hope for, I think. And, you know, you mentioned people constantly, a steady stream, especially
6: Fridays and Sundays with their suitcases or leaving and arriving. And you you open your piece with a kind of funny anecdote about a bachelorette party, which New Orleans is obviously a very popular destination for bachelor and bachelorette parties um, and sort of showing in a way how that changes a community a little bit. Um, Can you speak about that?
0: Yeah. So for the piece, we focused on um, this one block in Treme. Treme is this historic uh, black neighborhood right outside the quarter. Um, Some people call it the birthplace of jazz, although that's apparently a debate it's not clear if it was the birthplace of jazz but it's super jazzy (laughs) um anyway (laughs) on this block um it used to be sort of um you know a lot of middle-class black families owned homes there but by the time I got there this summer most of the neighbors were gone and in their place were homes that were being rented out full-time to tourists so I talked to this one guy Nice um, man who bought a home with his wife and his kids, you know, a big house on this block in Treme, and uh, watched as, like, sort of Airbnb took over the block and he wasn't loving it. And then one morning he wakes up and he looks over at the house next door, which is a permanent Airbnb, and he sees that the women who were staying there for a bachelorette party had hung balloons in the shape of penises all along the outside of the house. And this guy was like, you know what? I don't need to explain to my, like, five-year-old son what this penis balloon is or anything about this at all. And he was like, that was the last straw for me, and he sold his house. Um, And he tried to sell it to someone who would live in the neighborhood Mm full-time and wound up selling it to someone who now uses the house for an Airbnb. So it was just another Airbnb on the block. Wow. What are some ways that maybe the city could counteract this? Um, well, they could make changes to the legislation they passed this year. So, for example, one really controversial thing um, has to do with uh, double shotgun houses. Mm. And you, Caroline, tell me, like, <laughs> what I'm getting wrong and right, because New Orleans and shotgun houses is very specific. But there's sort of these—basically, um, they are, like, two family houses— mm-hmm. And people usually live on one side, and on the other side, they rent it out. So, and a lot of people in New Orleans, they rent out a half of a shotgun, and it's great. Now, with Airbnb and the city specifically made it totally fine to rent out the other side of your shotgun. They don't consider that a whole home rental. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's obviously taking a lot of rental apartments out of the market, right? If everyone's used to live in these half shotguns or shotgun apartments and now can't get them because they're being airbnb'd out that's a problem so the city could go back and change that for example
6: Mm. yeah i mean just thinking about it a lot of my friends who live in new orleans now that grew up there yeah they live in a shotgun house on one side and usually the owner lives on the other side Mm -hmm. and that's their landlord and and neighbor Um, so that definitely transforms that um i know there's there was some concern about who's owning some of these properties that are being rented out right. and a lot of, you know, enterprising people from outside the city, you know, recognizing, a pop, you know, a popular tourist destination, a great, you know, economy for Airbnb,
0: buying property just for Airbnb.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that an issue? Yeah, that's definitely an issue. There are definitely out-of-town uh, developers coming in and buying property. So people—so we talked about that one guy in Bywater. He was a local, longtime New Orleanian— Who's renting out his home, but these are people who are coming in from out of state um, and buying up, you know, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three houses and renting them out, and not living in the city at all. Um, and there's also a lot of new um, apartment buildings going up that are advertising that you know you can buy an apartment, but Airbnb it out like 80 percent of the time, um, stuff like that. Um, it kind of reminded me of like the housing boom back in the early aughts, you know, when people just started coming into cities or places, buying up houses and flipping them, it's very similar. And there's concern in the city that, you know, if there's any economic downturn or, you know, tourism kind of falls, falters a little bit, that this is going to be a bubble, you know, just waiting to burst. Yeah. What does Airbnb's take on this? Um, I think they look upon it. They, they argue that they're not having such a big outsized effect. Um, and they'll quote uh, research at you that would look at its effect on the whole city. But like I said, you can't look at Airbnb that way. You you want to look at little specific neighborhoods. Like if you look at New York City, it seems like Airbnb doesn't matter here. But if you look at specific neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy, for example, a historic black neighborhood that's undergone amazing amounts of gentrification, Airbnb has had a clear effect there. Same thing in New Orleans. They also say that most people who are using the service are just renting out a spare room um, and are doing it to get by. But like I said, we found a much different picture.
6: What is your take on you know, how this change can really transform the culture of a city? New Orleans, obviously a very unique place, a very rich culture. That's why people love to visit. They love to you know eat the amazing food and take in the live music. And also just the people of New Orleans, people love talking about the incredible locals they met. How do you
0: see Airbnb maybe transforming this culture? Right. I mean, to meet locals, there have to be locals. Mm-hmm. And it it just seems like if you let this kind of go kind of crazy, there's going to be fewer people who actually live in the places that make New Orleans distinctive. And that's going to be a problem you're going to. I mean, already you go to the French Quarter, and no one actually thinks the French Quarter is a real place. It's more like a Disneyland, Mm -hmm. basically. Um, But the charm of New Orleans is, like, you went to these other neighborhoods, and there was real stuff going on. It was sort of interesting. Musicians could thrive there and live there. The people who work in the quarter could thrive there and live there. Um, And now there's this danger of neighbors vanishing from neighborhoods.
3: Bachelor and bachelorette parties can be problematic.
6: Yeah, it's hard because tourism is obviously a major part of the New Orleans economy. People want tourists to come to New Orleans and have a great time and spend their money and people welcome outsiders. But I think in some ways it lately seems like the tourism industry is having a negative impact on locals in new ways, big and small. Uh, It's funny, it kind of reminds me of something Chris Royal said about
3: second lines. And the second line is like a parade of sorts, right?
6: Yeah, basically it entails a brass band marching through the streets, playing music while people follow behind and dance. Usually they wave handkerchiefs or parasols. Second lines are a big part of New Orleans cultural heritage, particularly for the black community. The tradition dates back to jazz funeral processions in the post-Civil War era. Now they're typically part of more festive celebrations in New Orleans. And Chris has a funny opinion about the way they've escalated in the tourism boom.
4: I know it's gotten kind of out of hand with the second lines for everything. Now we have second lines for a bachelorette party. Now you have a second (laughs) line because we got married. We have a second line just because I'm in New Orleans and I saw that Hannibal burst had a second line, so I want to do that too, you know, it's like, It's good for the brass bands because they stay working, but it's kind of annoying sometimes when you're on your way to a gig and you're running late and it's like, oh, another second line. Okay, gonna be late to my gig now.
3: We're gonna take a quick break, but when we get back, we check out some music. Stay with us. Before we get back to the show, have you found I'm still here on Apple Podcasts? If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or tell a friend. Or you can send us an email, still here at huffpost.com. Okay, now back to the show. We're back. Here's Caroline Bologna.
6: So at the top of the episode, Matt Sakini wondered if we are, quote, giving musicians the sort of respect and resources they deserve, given their importance to the city.
3: Yeah, so are there any organizations working to solve these problems that musicians face? There are. One of them is MACNO, the Music and
6: Culture Coalition of New Orleans. They're an advocacy group with a mission to preserve and nurture the city's culture. MACNO advocates for musicians and works with the city to implement policies that help keep the culture and community alive. The organizations also work to help clarify some of the laws that are in place that affect street performances and brass bands, which are a really quintessential part of the culture.
3: Are there places that the community can engage with the tradition and keep it alive? Where, where are they? Well, one is Musicians Village, after Katrina,
6: Harry Connick Jr. and Branford Marcellus conceived of a neighborhood development comprised of homes for musicians with a community center to serve the Upper Ninth Ward. They teamed up with the New Orleans Area Habitat for Humanity to bring Musicians Village and the Ellis Marcellus Center for Music to life. Our producer, Nick Offenberg, spoke to Ellen Smith, a singer and resident of Musicians Village, who also works at the center as an administrative assistant. I want
5: it. How can I help you, sir? I got to sign in. Okay. No, no, that's okay. for the kids. You're from New Orleans? Where, New Orleans. where from? I grew up um, when I came home from the hospital, I came home from the hospital to the Upper Ninth Ward neighborhood, to a house on Gallier Street. When I was four years old, my parents decided to stop renting and buy a house on Music Street, which worked out great for me since I turned out to be a singer, because I put my name and address on the business card, and it was <laughs> Music Street, and people were like, no, you're not a vocalist who lives on Music Street. And I'm like, yes, I am. Come knock on the door. <laughs> I'll answer it. So um, I started singing in my mid-20s. Then I started sitting with bands, and it took a while, because sitting in with a band, you know, you, ha- you, ha- you have to kind of, it's like on-the-job training. And I never went to school for music, it just was something that kind of like happened to me. And was fortunate enough to begin working with a band that had deep roots in the traditional jazz scene in New Orleans. So then I started touring, I worked a lot with that band, I worked with, with that band for many, many years. I'm no longer with that band because the band leader is deceased. His name was Bob French, and he was a mentor of Harry Connick Jr. and Brantford Marsalis. So you were you were gigging. I was gigging. You are doing night. it, I was, living I was, in the I was, Upper Ninth Ward. Every I earned was from a gig before Katrina. Right. Okay,
7: so then did you leave?
5: We evacuated, but I wasn't going to because we never did. So I was house-sitting for a friend of mine, and she had two dogs, and she's like, Ellen, I'm really worried that the storm is going to turn into something. And I need to know if you get out of there, you'll be able to take my dogs with you. And I said, well, I just paid Kiara's tuition for school, and that took every penny out of my checking account. So I had like $30 in the bank. And she said, "Um, if I call down to the corner store and give them my American Express card, they'll give you some cash, and you can get out of there. And she said, I need you to take my dogs, my husband's ashes, because he he had passed away a couple years before that, the hat that he used to play in because he was my piano player, um, and her wedding photo album, those were the things she wanted. So I said, well, yeah, we're going to go. I'm going I'm to do what you're saying and get out of here because I'm getting scared. So I went home to my mom, and you don't know how to act. So I started doing laundry so that things would be ready for when we came back because we were leaving and it was the weekend, and when we came back three days later, which was, was what everybody thought, we would start life again and just do our normal thing. I even laid my daughter's clothes out on my bed mm-hmm. so her uniforms, her shoes, and everything would be ready to go. So I said, Mom, come on, I got some money. Let's go. Let's evacuate. So I called some of my friends who had a pet because I had to find a pet-friendly hotel. So the closest one was in Dallas, which is a long way away, Mm -hmm. driving. So we did that. We get on the road with three days' worth of clothes, and I brought clothes with me that you cut grass in or go to the gym in. I didn't bring anything to go out and eat in or, you know, because we were coming home in three days. Mm -hmm. So then the next day comes, and the levees broke and we were watching from the hotel room in Dallas our city drown basically you know so <sighs> so we um, finally were allowed to come back home When? I think they, it was like six weeks the house had been sitting underwater. five feet of water got in the house um, I had to use WD-40 to spray in the lock to turn it because the lock had seized up, you couldn't turn the key without breaking it And I got in and I was just like, ugh, because it was five feet of water in the house. The ceiling fans were drooped down like that. There was black mold up the walls, all the way to the ceiling. Um, Everything was slushy. All the furniture had moved to like the middle of the room from being sloshed around. I lost all of my photo albums because I didn't take any of them and I thought that they would be okay. I put them in. Hold on. Okay. I thought the photo albums would be okay because I put them in a Rubbermaid tote, two big totes, and taped them up and put them high up on a chest drawer, but the water knocked the chest drawer over. And when the totes hit the water, they opened. So I'm trying to go in there and salvage whatever I can. I had been reading that you could get your CDs and take them out of the case and clean them if you did them in distilled water and, you know, the, the uniform that I had laid out for my daughter to go to school was ruined and the shoes were curled up like the witch on the wizard of oz because it was so hot in the house that was the other thing the um refrigerator and freezer had flipped open and all the food that was in them had come out and started to decompose so the stench in the house was unbearable so we knew we couldn't come back home and then i didn't know what else i was going to do and um i was trying to make plans to stay in dallas But it just wasn't New Orleans. It can never be New Orleans. You know, I got interviewed by a Dallas newspaper there, and I said, I feel like I'm on a different planet. This is so different from New Orleans, you know. I even started doing some gigs out there with this nice band. Um, but it just wasn't the same feeling as it is to sing with New Orleans musicians, you know. And I just knew I had to come home. So I was coming home every weekend because we were still getting gigs. So I was driving from Dallas to <laughs> New Orleans to do my Friday and Saturday night gig. And sometimes I'd have a Sunday night gig, too. And then I'd have to drive back to Dallas to get my daughter back in school, you know. So, but I'm just grateful because Harry and Brantford snuck into New Orleans, and I'm sure I'm not revealing anything because I know they said this before, with a film crew, and Harry was wading in the water, ways deep, getting people off roofs, rescuing people and stuff like that. And him and Brantford decided... They had to do something to help New Orleanians get back home, especially musicians, because our culture was washed away, you know? If nobody came back, what would we be? So all of that came full circle when the village was being built, and I was trying to find housing. I actually talked to Bob, and he told me what was going on, and he said, you might want to check this out. And he actually was a resident in the senior rentals until his passing, so... I was afraid when Bob first said to me, why don't you see about what's going on in Musicians' Village, because Harry Connick Jr. and Branford Marsalis um, have partnered with Habitat, and maybe you want to get a house back there. And I was just really scared because the neighborhood wasn't really safe, you know. So, but it turned out to be better than I thought it was. This was a middle school. Everywhere you see Musicians' Village was a middle school that had been closed way before Katrina, and um, they were, it was empty and fallen, up, fallen down. You know. So when Habitat got the property, they cleared it and started building houses, and they built 72 houses back here and the center. And I think because this is here, the neighborhood is changing, and it's gonna be all good things for the neighborhood. We do concerts here, we do community outreach. Our mission is yeah. to serve the children of the Ninth Ward, um, and that includes the zip codes, 7017, 70126, and surrounding. We have an after-school program for them. They come here, they can come here as early as 315 and get a healthy snack because our executive director is very big on nutrition for kids. I wanted to ask you about some
7: of your mentors Mm -hmm. and you mentioned Bob French. Mm -hmm. you just tell me a little bit about him and your relationship?
5: Um, He was a band leader that I worked with and I considered him to be like a father figure to me because he wasn't just a band leader. If I needed new tires on my car, he made sure I got them. Um, when he bought food in bulk, he made sure to send me some. Any kind of opportunity that he knew would help me out, he always threw my name in the hat if somebody needed a grand marshal for the second line or something like that. He always tried to help me, you know. So, but then he was kind of rough too. You know, so that's why he was a father figure. He said what was on his mind, and if he thought I was doing something stupid, he let me know, mm-hmm. you know. It was just like a dad, yeah. you know. And then, of course, ha- him having mentored Harry and Branford and all of this happening as a result of my relationship with Bob, you know, it was a very good thing to have known him. Do you think all of that really manifests in this place? Absolutely, and we have... um The neighborhood is filled with people from Bob's band who all have experienced the same thing through him, and he ran the oldest traditional jazz band in the city, so steeped in tradition, you know. All my neighbors, um, Shamar, he's a trumpet player. Kid Chocolate is a trumpet player. I worked with all of them, you know, with Bob. So we got Al Carnival Time Johnson living down on the corner right there. He just got out of the hospital. He looked great. I saw him last night. Um, And it's just the memories that we had of working with Bob that we'll pass on to the kids who are coming in here. Proud to be here. I'm proud of the work that we're doing. And we are going to turn out some mega stars from the Ellis Marcella Center of Music because we already got such shining stars here right now. It's amazing. These kids have come so far since 2012 when we opened to this day, and they make me proud.
3: This place seems deeply connected to a legacy and a tradition.
7: Right. And the night before I spoke to Ellen, Caroline and I went to a concert at the Center. The pianist and artist-in-residence Jesse McBride was leading the Ellis Marsalis Center for Music Jazz Orchestra, playing a program of compositions by one of his own mentors, Harold Batiste. The performance was part of the Silver Book series a concert series presenting repertoire by New Orleans modern jazz composers.
3: And Jesse was your teacher at Tulane, right?
7: Yeah, I studied with him for a couple years and I still have my own copy of The Silver Book which contains all of these compositions. But the thing about Jesse was that a lot of his teaching took place beyond the classroom. We even volunteered for a week in Musicians Village to help build homes. We probably weren't the best carpenters. During what were supposed to be short lunch breaks, we'd head over to Harold Batiste's apartment and play his tunes on the upright piano, songs like Beautiful Old Ladies. And then we'd trickle back to Musician's Village late for our afternoon shifts. But I think I knew then that there was an important lesson here. And of course, I can see now how it's all connected. For example, the community center at Musician's Village is named after Ellis Marcellus, another one of Jesse's teachers from his time at the University of New Orleans, and another composer in The Silver Book. So between Ellen Smith, Jesse McBride, Harry Connick Jr., the Marcellus family, and so many more, you can see how they're passing on the lessons from their teachers and mentors.
3: So where did you go next?
7: I went to The Prime Example. It's a jazz club in the Seventh Ward neighborhood where Jesse has led his group, The Next Generation, every Wednesday night for the last four years. I caught up with Jesse and his manager, Dorian Francis, backstage before the band went on.
9: Kimbro has allowed us to grow a whole four-year new group of cats.
8: Yep, and this marks the four-year four anniversary.
7: This is Dorian Francis.
8: <laughs> Preserving jazz in New Orleans. You know, you have your jazz in other places. This is one of the only music venues that have live jazz in the inner city. I mean, we basically follow in suit. You know, we just carry on tradition. Let's be specific Landers. about
9: tradition, because right. there is the New Orleans traditional music that I, I play. I love it, and that is a part of the uh, entire tradition. But we're specifically trying to make sure that the second 50 years, as Harold Baptiste would say, right. is preserved, and it's the music of Harold Baptiste. and. Ellis Marcellus and Alvin Baptiste and James Black, Tammy Lynn, Nathaniel Perliant. Uh, yeah, that's what we've been able to do at the uh, Prime Example.
7: So we heard you guys last night at the Ellis Marcellus Center for Music playing a program as part of the Silver Book series, which you're the band leader, artist in residence. Yep. How is that concert significant to you?
9: Oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's one show of probably a thousand I've done and I did more shows that are in dedication to Harold when he was alive than since he's been passed only because I just have more years of doing shows while he was alive You know, give a cat his roses while he's alive and uh, that's why we still play the music because it's great music it's part of the lineage of New Orleans and uh, a lot of people don't know about it so some people might know and, and can look up all of his um, um, pop music uh, history with Sonny and Cher and you know, creation of Dr. John. And he did arrangements with Sam Cooke. I recently saw a documentary and didn't even see Bat mention in that documentary on Sam Cooke. I was like, boy, boy, boy. That's why he was so cognizant of history. And that's why he wrote his own book, because he said people forget. I forgot forgot those stands at
7: my house. During our conversation, Jesse realized he left his music stands at home. So I let him go take care of that and spoke to a few members of his band while the rest played pool and went over their parts.
1: I play with Ellis Marsalis on uh, the quintet, Ellis Marsalis Quintet, at Snug Harbor every Friday. This is Ashlyn Parker, a
7: trumpet player in the group.
1: I will follow him, you know, until he doesn't feel like playing anymore, you know. 83 years old so we're hoping we got at least another 30 years out of him you know and of course he's directly connected with all of this exactly exactly at least one fourth of the tunes in the silver book yeah. are are from his pen and he puts the pen down I mean I, I, I've played shows where when we finish the melody of his original compositions they start clapping and I was like that's when you know you put the pen down is when folks are clapping after the melody like, that's amazing, you know? you know? Nostalgic impressions, like, there's nothing like that. No, you know? I was wondering if you could say, what does the next generation mean to you, whether it's the repertoire or kind of the legacy? Mm-hmm. Well, we have a culture here uh, in America of YouTube stars. People think that everybody can be, or be discovered, that kind of thing. And um, we really lost apprenticeship and I think what you can see from Jesse is he how how seriously he took apprenticeship, um, um, and that next generation needs to be apprentices. They need to they get in line with in the lineage of of the masters, you know. Because otherwise, you're just going to reinvent the wheel at best, you know. It's like it's really it's really the the foundation um, of. What we're trying to do here is just pass it on and not have it fall on deaf ears. you know this music is amazing repertoire from you know fifty, sixty years ago, and it it it's still fresh and it sounds great sometimes i'm I like how maybe folks in Detroit and in New York don't know these tunes, you know, and when they hear it and they hear James Black on drums, they think this is late eighties and stuff like that. I'm like, no, this is sixty one you know. And so it's still fresh for a lot of folks. So we have no, we have, you know, there's no resentment in that. We're gonna keep this alive, and and when the New York Cats come down thinking that they can school us, we start playing tunes they never even heard of, you know, <laughs> you know, and watch them uh, go from wanting to sit in to leaving with the tail between their legs, you know, because they really don't expect there to be a modern scene here, you know. And there's a, there's a, there is a lineage, you know, right. you know, they're We've had some distractions on, on, along the way, but, they, but folks like Jesse McBride are right here and keeping that lineage solid, you know. And this is, you know, the only black-owned jazz club in the city, you know, besides Kermit's, I guess, you know. And so the, the, this is a really special place. This is a place where if you don't bring it, they'll yell, the audience will yell at you. But well, you better play. You better play. I've seen people get yelled at, think that you're going to be all timid and, you know, try to hide for their soul. Nope you know I, and, and I'm so glad that Jesse does um this in this club is perfect, it's perfect, and we don't have to bend for tourists, we get to worry about the art you know we don't we don't we don't we don't bow to tourists, you know they're gonna have to catch up with us, you know it's just just what it is you know I love it, I love it. I wish it was like that on Frenchman i like I wish it was like that on bourbon, which was you know really did we gotta we gotta make sure the 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 art. Uh, keeps his integrity, you know. As soon as we start bowing for, for, uh, for tourists, and we start playing Bruno Mars at every gig, and people come here to listen to New Orleans music, and then we just play what's on the radio. And that's just not. It's not. That's not right. You know. We've got beautiful repertoire. We got music festivals all over the world that celebrate this music. So we can do that too. <laughs> we can do that too.
8: For me. One of, the, um, one of the most amazing things about Jesse you know continuing a legacy to keep the next generation thing going on is the back used to come here every Wednesday. You know he used to come here every Wednesday. he would sit in the front and he would sit and enjoy- and it's like for him to have the opportunity to see something that he created, be continued by one of his students. you know, man, for me. You know, I used to just sit back and off, you know, because it's like, you know, like who would have ever thought that Jesse would trickle into his office one day and that would become what it had. Jesse come back to New Orleans to be, you know, a, a, a prime caretaker and, you know, you know, support him in all of the ways that he can. It, it's just amazing. Again, and I am gonna say that word amazing multiple times because knowing the origin of jazz and what. Mr. Batiste and, you know, Mr. Marcellus and Mr. Black, all of those guys represented around the world. And to say that we are representing that culture and that legacy today is, again, amazing, (laughs) you know? So um, my hat goes off to Jesse, man. Um, Coming off of that, would you say the legacy
7: remains strong?
9: uh, I don't know. I don't know yet. I don't know how strong it is. We'll see. It's all about what these cats do next. I went from a time where I was the youngest person in the band and I'm not the oldest today in this particular band, because Derek's a little older than me, but that's about it at this point, so the time will tell.
7: We don't know what will happen to the music community as they continue to face these issues, but as we've seen, there are organizations and artists working to preserve the culture.
6: So what else can be done? Well, Matt Sakakini actually shared some great advice for non-New Orleanians who want to visit the city. It's from Macno's Good Visitor's Guide to New Orleans. Here's Matt.
2: You know, always tip your musicians. Don't be... um, stingy about going into a bar that has a cover charge you you know if you're back home in new york city and uh you want to go out and hear a jazz show you're expecting to pay 25 dollars or more to go hear that and yet in new orleans people will balk at paying five or ten dollars to go into a bar because the 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 notion is that there's music that's free everywhere when you stop and listen to a street musician playing on the corner throw a couple bucks or more into the hat when you uh, find a musician that you like and you want to listen to their music at home, go out and buy their CD or a download of their music. It's um, uh, one of the things that's hard to get people to recognize is that musicians need to earn a living too. They're not; they don't want to be starving artists. They want to be respected and compensated for what they give to the world that no one else can and in new orleans we're very lucky to be surrounded by so many of these creative people but the unlucky flip side of that coin is that a lot of them are really struggling to get by and so individuals should step up and and realize that you know they're not going to take a job that doesn't pay any money and they're not going to expect it to do a job that doesn't pay and musician and we shouldn't expect that of musicians either and then, like I keep saying, the, the, the structure needs to be changed as well so that if there's money being invested in people coming to this city and experiencing the local culture, then, then money needs to impact the individuals who uphold that culture more directly.
3: I'm Still Here is a HuffPost podcast produced and edited by Nick Offenberg and Jessica Samikow. This story was reported by Caroline Bologna, with additional reporting from Nick Offenberg. I'm Ziba Blay. Additional music heard in this episode comes from Chris Royal, as well as from Jesse McBride, the Ellis Marsala Center for Music, Jazz Orchestra, and The Next Generation. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or send us an email. Tell us your story of survival. Still here at HuffPost.com.